I'm Reggie Bailey. He's Achilles Nazari. Welcome to Books of Pop Culture. Achilles, wow. how you feeling, brother? Hey, man, I'm living. I'm living. I'm feeling good, man. I'm, I'm feeling, you know, I turned 35, but I'm feeling 25 today. I'm feeling a little spry. Hey, hey man, <laughs> I think you're feeling 25. I am think I'm feeling 45, man. Whoa. I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Oh, Never. man. Not yet. I got a long way to go. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but thank you to the fellowship. Thank you to first time listeners, last time listeners, first time viewers, last time viewers, and everyone in between. All of you appreciate it because you could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. And uh, that's including those who are watching live and those are watching later. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe, leave a like, comment, share that you're watching, turn on post notifications so you can always know when we're dropping something new. If you're listening to your on your favorite podcast app, follow us, subscribe to us, leave a review, share that you're listening, turn on post notifications so you'll know when we drop something new. Um, speaking of the fellowship, join it. That's our community, um, on Patreon. It's amazing. Um, Achille and I biasly and objectively believe it's the best in bookish communities. You can join yes. at patreon.com slash books of pop culture by pledging $5 a month. You support two of the best up and coming creators in the bookish landscape. You receive access to bonus episodes of BAPC every month, and you have the opportunity to provide feedback on new ideas and initiatives before we go live with them um and something fun that we'll be doing is uh reading some books right we always read books and discuss them in march we're reading wayward lives beautiful experiments by sadia hartman we'll be discussing this on march 27th of 2022 um in april we'll be reading the trees by percival everett and we'll be discussing this on april 24th 2022 when we get some merch it got to be like me looking for my books just me looking you know, for my books just Kelly looking for the books hey that's a nice picture though you know what i mean <laughs> that would be a nice picture yeah and, uh, feel free to purchase these from bookshop.org slash shop slash books of pop culture because if you do not only do we get a vote of support from you but we also receive a small commission which we're always grateful for and if you forgot everything that I just said, you can always rewind, whether you're live or watching later, or you can just go to booksofpopculture.com because our website holds all the who's, what's, when's, where's, and why's of uh, Books of Pop Culture. So, Achille, uh, you think it's time to get into it and read the uh, read our guest bio? Man, they said we got either Oprah or Alice Walker is what they said. <laughs> they said the jet is has landed and mm. we got something. So, yes, I believe it's time, brother. It's time. All right. Let, let me see if it is. I think it's Alice Walker, but we're going to find out. So <laughs> word, word. Uh, the person we got coming up is a Harvard PhD, a historian, a poet, an essayist, a staff writer at The Atlantic host of the YouTube mm. series Crash Course Black American History, a 2014 go. National Poetry Slam champion, 2017 recipient of the Jerome J. Shestack Prize from the American Poetry Review. His poetry collection, which I won't name yet, won the 2017 Literary Award for Best Poetry Book from the Black Caucus of America Library Association and was a finalist for the NAACP Image Award. His My most recent beat. book which I won't name yet, was a number one New York Times bestseller. It was named one of the 10 best books of 2021 by the New York Times Book Review. It was long listed for the National Book Award for nonfiction. It was a finalist for the Penn John Kenneth Gabriel Award. 
and is currently a finalist for the National Books Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction. Those two books that I didn't name are the poetry collection, Counting Descent, and the uh, narrative nonfiction work, How the Word is Passed. Clint Smith, it's an honor. It's a pleasure. It's good to be here with y'all. Thank yes, you. Yes, yes. Look at Philip. Yeah, talk. Look at uh, Philip B. Williams. He said we were telling too much. He figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, knows, Philip knows everything. Philip knows I, just everything. Phil at, uh, I just saw Phil at the Penn Awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was he was ready. clean too. Had his had his uh, stones on and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought I had to step it up. I was scared to take pictures standing next to him. That's how it be, man. <laughs> oh, man. That's that is uh, that is Philip though. Fly dude, Achilles. I think you got a question. We asked all our guests initially. It's tough not to ask this when we see you backstage, by the way, too. Yes, yes. So, Clint, how are you doing? And when we ask how are you doing, we mean genuinely. So, you know, if you if you're having a poopy day, you know, detail the poop. If you're having a great day, tell us how the sun is 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 touching your skin. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I I appreciate that. Um, today's been a good day. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, Sunday is a good day. It's, um, it's the first really like nice warm day we've had in a while. I live in Maryland yeah. right outside of DC. Um, and we, uh, I'm a big Arsenal fan. So woke up Arsenal, uh, for people who don't know soccer, Arsenal's a soccer team out in, in London, in the UK, um, woke up Arsenal one today. Uh, then I took my kids on a play date to the park. It was beautiful outside. Um, and play dates are funny because, like, I, I just watched this Ali Wong um, stand up where she was like, play dates are like a wild concept because it's just blind dates for parents. Mm. And uh, your, your kids are just like bringing you to meet these people. And she's like, like, I don't have any chemistry with Karen. And it's like, I definitely have been on those play dates where you're like, man, this is, um, this is not, this is definitely for the kids and not for us. Uh, but today, yeah. it was cool. It was like parents who were vibing with each other. It was a beautiful, sunny day. Then my brother's in town, went and had some lunch. Um, ah, that's and, real uh, nice. It's been, it's been good. Um, I th you know, I think January and February were rough, rough times. Uh, school, I got a four and a three-year-old. School closures were, um, and COVID exposures. And I mean, it was, it was super inconsistent and it was cold and uh, gray. It was it was a rough time, I think, for all of us in many ways. But you know, um, there's always always something going on in the world, and obviously, you know, thinking about the people in Ukraine. And um, but you know, it's it's nice to uh, to be getting toward the end of. You know, I don't even know if I should say the end of, given that every time you think it's the end, it comes right back. Um, yeah. The this this temporary, you know, this current end of the the COVID. Um, peak that we just had and uh yeah you know I, I, my wife and i were like in a restaurant for the first time in a long time just the small things that i think you know in the before times we took for granted that um i definitely don't take for granted anymore word word yeah yeah no nah, and um i've been thinking about that too like about particularly what you said about covid and just how like we it, it seems like like people want it to be over they really do and you could mm -hmm. tell like people are talking about like at least you know my day job like going back in and stuff and it's just like i look up and devin booker's in protocol and i'm just like mm. man it's always yeah. a sign when when it's the nba right mm. so mm, yeah. who knows we'll we'll see what happens we'll see um, we'll see 
the the next question that we that we always ask right and i and i know you'll have a really good answer for this potentially right so what are so i'll ask in the singular but feel free to answer in the plural right okay uh what is one of the most important lessons you've learned about the business of writing and and i ask that knowing about your poetry collection knowing about mm -hmm. You, the work you do writing, you know, with the Atlantic and other, you know, uh, places as well. And of course, you know how the word is passed. Number one, New York mm -hmm. Times bestseller. Um, any any writer in the room, what would you want to tell them to keep in mind about the business of writing? That's a good question. The business of writing. Um, I think part of what, you know, it's interesting. I've had these two different publishing experiences. I had my poetry book that came out in 2016. Yeah. It was published on a very small poetry specific press, um, you know, basically run by like one, two, a, hand, a small handful of people. Um, and and it was a poetry book. So like poetry books tend to be quieter unless you're, you know, like Amanda Gorman or Rita Love or, um, or Rita, I said Rita Love, Rita Dove, um, uh, or, you know, like a really prominent, prominent voice. Um, and, and that poetry experience was like, or that book publishing experience was very much uh, defined by the hustle that I put into it, right? So I did, I think, 107 events in over the course of seven months. Um, I was just like, I was just grinding. I just like went and I was like on people's futons. I was like, you know, on people's couches. If you had a guest room, that was a bonus. Like, um, and I was just going, just like reaching, I was, I would reach out to bookstores. I'd say, can I come do an event at the bookstore? Um, I was making flyers on P, you know, I was making PDFs. I was, it was like a one stop. I was the one stop shop. Um, yeah. and I did it like that because we, my wife and I were in the process of thinking about starting a family. And so I was like, well, this is the only time I'm going to be able to do it like this. Um, yeah. and you know, there wasn't there wasn't anything sort of behind the the effort other than what I was putting into it. Um, the experience with how the word has passed has been very different because I, I'm with one of the big New York City publishing houses. Um, and I think it's it's important to recognize that like the decisions of the way that certain books end up on the New York Times bestseller list or um, they are not singularly shaped by the quality of the book. Like I hope what I did was wrote a really good book. Like I, and I, I feel good about my book. I feel confident about my book. And I feel, you know, I wrote the sort of book that I would have wanted to read when I was like a 16 year old kid in my American history class. Like that was what was the sort of um, North star of my writing process. When I decided like, what, who is the audience for this book? I was like, if I can write a book that like teenage Clint would have been proud of, that teenage Clint would have been eager to read that would have helped him understand the landscape of his city, of his state, of his country more effectively, then I've done my job. And like, that's, that was all that mattered to me. Um, because part of what you realize is that the, every, everything else is kind of out of your control in some way, right? Like you, you can't define the success of your project by a host of external factors and validations and prizes and, um, and lists that, that aren't necessarily in your control. With that said, I do think it's important for people to know that like, it's not just like, 
like what ends up on the New York Times bestseller list isn't just kind of like magic. Like it, publishing houses make decisions about what sort of books they are going to put a lot of resources behind. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think I was cognizant of that as as much before. Uh, before, like I was one of the books that they chose that they that Little Brown said, like, you are going to be our lead title. We're going to put all of our muscle into making sure this book gets into as many hands as possible. And I felt you know, so lucky that that happened. I felt so grateful. I'm, I'm just like full of gra immense gratitude. Um, and, and I hope the book is moving in a way and is part of a tradition that, um, that, uh, that deserves the sort of effort that has been put into it. But I do think, you know, there's so many incredible books that, that never make any lists. They never get the readership they deserve. They never uh, get. I mean, you know, I think about some of the most transformative books that I've ever read. The the books, some of the books that made my book possible. Uh, yeah. And like you know, they they've not been they've not reached the readership that I would say that they deserved. I read a New York Times piece. I think it was in the New York Times or something a little while ago. Said, and I might have the numbers off a little bit, but like ninety eight percent of books never sell more than 5,000 copies or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. And that was, I was like, man, that's, that is, uh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about the publishing industry before. And so all of that's a long way of saying, you know, in terms of the business of it, it is, if you're, what you see on the New York Times bestseller list is not singularly a reflection of, of the quality of a book or is or because the books that have staying power on the list are not always but often very often good right or, or good to consider good to somebody um yeah. but well, there are yeah. i mean there are like thousands of books yeah. that never even get close to that um and it's not because they're not good enough to be there i guess that's yeah like yeah when is that making the uh, something like the new york times bestseller list is not a reflection of the quality or lack of quality of your book um, yeah. it is a result of a host of structural uh forces and resources that are allocated in one direction or another uh to make sure that your book which people believe is of a certain quality gets in front of as many people as possible um and yeah and it's just been interesting to view that from from the inside so first off, thank you so much for that answer. Um, there are people who are going to see that and they're going to really appreciate it. And they should because um, yeah. that I mean, that's about as real as it get. Right. And a couple other things I want to respond to that you said. Uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't read it. How the word is passed is great. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I know you said you hope your book is good. It's great, actually. So don't worry about that. Right. Um, the the next thing I wanted to say, what else did you say in there? You know what? I can't even remember. Achilles. No, I went all over the place. No, it's it's all good, though. But yeah. Like you, oh, what you said also that I think you were preaching to the choir when you said this hmm. was that so many books um, don't make the bestseller list that are good. One hmm. thing that we have always tried to do in this space is amplify works that do not get the attention that they deserve 
one work that comes to mind that we like spend time with is a uh, short story collection, Miss Muriel and Other Stories by Ann Petrie, right? Mm, yeah. Or even um, a book like If He Hollers, Let Him Go by I Chester, just said, Himes, Chester Himes, yeah. was one of our favorite books to break down, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah you, just the said, book, you, you just put, picked, picked up a book at the beginning by, by Sadia Hartman, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like, you know, if you know, you know about Sadia Hartman, but yeah. like, Sadia, I don't think Sadia Hartman's ever had a book on the New York Times bestseller list. I don't think that many people out in the like general public necessarily yeah. know who Sadia Hartman is, even though they should, because she's yeah, one yeah. of the most important scholars in in the game. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? So, so I, it is. It's just a reminder that like there are so many of those people and those writers and those books that that are so formative and have the possibility of being so transformative. Um, for folks, if we can get get their hands on it, and and like you said, I think you know spaces like y'all's and and so many books to grammars and so many um, so many creatives, especially creatives of color, are you know I have so much love for who are doing the work of trying to put these sorts of books on on people's radars. So thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were mentioning tradition. I was thinking about what me and Reggie was talking about before you got on was. Um, how your book and Imani's book is doing like work that was kind of in this lineage of uh, Murray, Albert Murray's mm-hmm. book. And what was the book you said, Reggie? Um, it was South- another book. Oh, on Juneteenth, Annette Gordon Reed. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were talking about how all of those are like missiles, yeah. um, you know, for, for, cause both of us are from the South. Reggie's from the Northern South, um, you know, and I'm from I'm- the real South. Yeah. Uh, I'm from I'm from Virginia. I live in Delaware now, so I'm close to you. But I mean, yeah. some some parts of Virginia are like you know that's that's the South. Like, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. You you we both read the same book. You know Virginia. No, I I, I, <laughs> I I I think I was operating under some like oh you know I've been to Arlington like Ar- you know Arlington's not the South, Man. but now you go 30 minutes further south than that, and you're just like oh, okay. Nah, he yeah. was in Petersburg, and that's what I'm saying. Like I, like I, I graduated high school in Chester. I don't know if you like remember the area down there like mm-hmm. that, but like you was in Petersburg. Like we used to play them in high school for basketball. Yeah. So like, part of your book is literally in my like in my hometown, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Heavy, heavy. So who's it on, Reggie? Is, is it me first? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. You got it, man. All right, all right. Let's get the party started. So. Uh, in the piece you wrote for uh, the Atlantic title, Close to Home, uh, you wrote, uh, at the same time with our climate on the cusp of irreversible catastrophe, I've spent more time than ever before contemplating how uh, each of our fates is inextricably linked to the actions of everyone else. Uh, home is more than simply the residence where we sleep. It is the people we hold and the planet that holds us. Editing out planet and inserting the phrase Southern Landscape. I'm interested in what it is uh, or what it was like writing about how we Southerners, white, black and indigenous folk are all inextricably tied to each other and how the world on and how the word is passed within this idea of holding. How does the Southern landscape hold us inextricably together for better or worse? Well, y'all ask good questions. Oh man! <laughs> you, when you've been, you. been on a book tour, you uh, you you're used to becoming like a jukebox, and you just like hit yeah, them with, yeah. you hit them with the greatest hits. that's such an original question. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, thank you. Question God, man. That's what we call that's him in Instagram. Yeah, they call me the Question God. I well, watch I mean, all of your interviews from, to make sure that we don't ask you the same things. I appreciate <laughs> it. I mean, pulling from all sorts of directions there. Um. 
You know, I think that for me, it is impossible to understand the South if you're not going to attempt to understand it in its totality, right? Yeah. And in its complexity, in its in its nuance. And I think that you know, I've listened to some interviews about um, with Imani, who we mentioned, and Imani Perry in her book, and and part of what I know was important for her and her project was was to uh, disabuse people of the caricature of the South, right? Of it yeah. being this homogenous or singular or or flat two-dimensional version of itself. Um, and, you know, for me, the South is, is this place that is as dynamic and as vibrant and as expansive as, as any other place in the world. I mean, you know, racially, culturally, politically, um, you have so many different traditions, so many different lineages that are present there. Um, so many different histories of, uh, of of violence that have been enacted on on different folks there, and, and so you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book was to to help people understand that sometimes we look at we look at history and we think, uh, you know, for example, the Confederacy. There's the Confederacy, uh, the Southern states, and then there's the the Union, the Northern states, and and we tend to, what history pushes us to do, often unconsciously, is to group those massive regions together as if every single person in those places believed the same things. Yeah. And that's, that's never been the case. It's not the case today. It's also the, it's the same sort of flattening that happens with red states and blue states. Obviously, it has... Um, uh, political implications in terms of like who is in charge of each respective like governorship or state legislature. But like, you know, when you say a red state or blue state, if you talk about Mississippi as being a red state, you're like only capturing part of what makes Mississippi, Mississippi, because Mississippi is, you know, a red state, quote unquote, but also is where more black people live per capita than anywhere else in the country. Right. Yeah. And so like, what a, you are, you are, you're not capturing the totality and the dy dynamism of that place, if you are only going to refer to it as like a red Southern state, um, yeah. because that doesn't account for the, the politics and the experiences of a massive group of people who live there. And that's, you know, and then you include like the rising immigrant populations in these states, you include the uh, indigenous communities that are still present in these states. So, you know, part of what I want to do, you know, and part of what I hope my book is, um, is is a part of is is one effort to disabuse people of the idea that the South is a singular thing, um, yeah. and that it is in fact uh, a a place and a space uh, and a range of, of places and spaces that that are so uh, suffused with with all sorts of people um, and all sorts of experiences that that need to be taken seriously and that we need to address with with precision rather than sort of overarching claims about what a place is or isn't. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I'll add, right. I, I mentioned on Juneteenth earlier as a book, I feel like yours is in conversation with, right. Yeah. I say that because of how you did paint this complicated picture of not only the South of the North, but also of like Senegal, right. When you went mm -hmm. there, which yeah, could also, yeah, yeah. I'm sure like represent other countries in Western Africa as well, or just other countries that participated uh, in the slave trade um and then 
But I also wanted to say this actually transitions into a question I had for you, right? So on pages eight and nine of How the Warriors Pass, you speak about Montpelier and Monticello plantations, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson by extension, right? By saying both of the men inscribed words that promoted equality and freedom in the founding documents of the United States while owning other human beings. Both men built a nation while making possible the plunder of millions of people. What they gave our country and all they stole from it must be understood together. And I think this quote sits at the table with Damaris, who was your tour guide in New York, because what she was telling you and your group was to not believe any historical messages that you received that make you comfortable. And mm -hmm. she thanked you all for being uncomfortable with her during the duration of your tour. So I wanted to know if you could talk to us about the journey you've been on and perhaps the journey you're still on as a historian as it pertains to embracing all the elements, facts, feelings, and discomfort that the history you study presents? I think, you know, part of what this experience has taught me, you know, it, I wrote this book over the course of four or five years, um, is that you, you just have to always move with humility and curiosity, right? You know, this book was not written by somebody who began this project as an expert on the history of slavery. I have a PhD, but it's it's not a PhD in history. My PhD is in sociology of education. And I wrote a dissertation mm -hmm. on the uh, educational experiences of people who are incarcerated. I've been teaching in prisons for several years. And, and you know, as a scholar, I've been interested in how we create educational systems and educational infrastructures that um, help incarcerated folks create a sense of meaning uh, when it comes to, to learning and, and allowing them to define the purpose of education for themselves uh, without any sort of um, uh, reference to like the social utility of, of what they're learning necessarily. So, but I also had this huge interest in public history, which is how I came to this book. And, you know, I think part of what I wanted to do was to create a book that modeled and was was reflective of the sensibilities of the docents, the tour guides, and the historians who I, I was meeting in my time uh, at these various sites. Because as much as this book is a book of history and I hope a book of literature, it's also kind of an homage to the, the public historians and docents and tour guides out there who are at these historical sites doing what I think is, is incredible, incredible work um, and pushing folks who might not otherwise, who might not pick up a copy of How the Word is Passed, or might not pick up a copy of a book by Annette Gordon-Reed, or might not pick up a book by Sadia Hartman, and, and, and allows them to encounter sets of information and pieces of information that has the potential to push them to recalibrate how they understand this country and this country's history. And so part of what they do so well, I think, is this, there's like a both and in this to how they engage, which is they, it's for somebody like Damaris, uh, for example, like Damaris, extends both a sort of grace and generosity while also demanding a, a sense of accountability and responsibility, which is to say she's, yeah. when you show up on Damaris's tour or David's tour at Monticello or Yvonne's tour at Whitney or spend time with Norris around Angola, like there's not going to be judgment about what you don't know when you show up to that place. Nobody's going to be condescending toward you. Nobody's going to uh, make a, you know, make, make judgments of you or your, your intellect or your sense or, or who you are because of what you don't know coming into the space. But when they present that information to you, there is the expectation that you're gonna sit with that and you're gonna hold that 
and you're gonna wrestle with that, even when it's jarring, even when it runs counter to so many of the stories and narratives you've been presented with your entire life. And I think that there's a, they, they, they are able to sort of meet people where they are without compromising the, the empirical truth or the, the rigor of, of what they are conveying to these, um, conveying to these folks. And I, I just have so much admiration for that and wanted to try to write a book that, that captured that same, um, that same vibe, right? That captured that same both andiness that, that didn't feel like that was, it's not a polemic. It's not didactic. It's not saying this, this is a history that you should have known the whole time. Cause it's not, you know, I, I learned something at all of these places. Right. And that's why, and I wanted to model that sort of vulnerability and that sort of honesty and say, and be honest about the things that I found surprising, the things I found jarring, the things that I knew about, the things that I didn't know about, because I think it then gives the reader permission uh, to have those sort of reactions and responses uh, for themselves. Man, it, it is so refreshing to even hear you say that too, like that you were learning because yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like I have my moments where I'm big headed, where I'm like, you can't tell me nothing from history yeah. that yeah, I haven't yeah. come across yet. Right. And reading how the word is passed, I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to be more humble. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so. So, yeah, yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And that's that's dope to hear you even say that, too. Yeah. And you were um, when we we're in the back, Rich, you were speaking to just how powerful those two guys was to your experience. You were like. Oh, yeah. They yeah, so yeah. it's definitely an homage to to the amazing work that they do. All right, so it's back on me. All yeah. right, all right. So uh, I was reading Counting Descent uh, this morning, which is an amazing piece of work, by the way. Uh, and and as I was reading it, uh, some of the things that you kind of talk about that the children experience in terms of history um, was was leading me to this passage uh, about your encounter with Jefferson's words regarding uh, Miss Wheatley Peters. Uh, work. Uh, I'll read it real quickly for the fellowship in case you guys hadn't read it. But uh, Jefferson writes, misery is often the parent of the most affecting touches in poetry. Among the blacks is misery enough, God knows, but no poetry. Love is the peculiar ostrom of the poet. Their love is ardent, but it kindles the sense only, not the imagination. You mentioned working on this collection in the aftermath of Ferguson's uprising uh, and seeing him as a man who had not had a clear understanding of what love is. You speak of Hayden, Brooks, Lord and Sanchez and center their propensity towards witnessing the equal part survival, community, language and poetry all play in the makeup of love. What is it about his inability to see us as more than objects that drove you to his clear misinterpretation of what love is? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always been really struck by Jefferson's commentary on Phyllis Wheatley. Um, you know, Phyllis Wheatley, for folks who don't know, is considered to be the first published Black American, uh, the first Black American to publish a book um, in in this country. And, you know, as he says, as, as you mentioned, Jefferson says that love is the ostrom of the poet, uh, which is to say, like, in Jefferson believes that in order to, for in order to create poetry, in order to create art, one has to experience the emotional sensibilities and, and texture of love. And he does not believe that black people are capable of transcending to an emotional space in which they can experience love that serves as catalyst for one's sort of uh, imagination, for one's uh, cre creativity. And so we can. he was looking at Wheatley and he's like, we can call this something else, but we shouldn't call it poetry because black people don't possess the, the emotional 
or creative acumen with which to create art. He said that Wheatley's work was, quote, below the dignity of criticism, that it wasn't even worth engaging with because yeah. it wasn't real art. And so for me, you know, and I write about this in, in How the Borders Path that, that you're citing, it's such a myopic conception of what somebody believes love is. Like, how can you, every day on his plantation, and maybe the answer is that he didn't, he chose not to see this. Um, yeah. But every day on, on your plantation, there are these remarkable, examples of the manifestation of love. I mean, the, the families that are created uh, and built when other when people have been otherwise separated from their biological family members, right? The way that somebody, you know, a woman will take a child in as her own yeah. if that, you know, once because their mother uh, has been sold away or the way that, um, you know, people uh, on, on Sunday night, Sunday evenings, um, will I like get together and, and sing together um, and have, you know, cere wedding ceremonies together in, in spite of living in the context of um, uh, an institution that, that largely forbade those sorts of things. Um, you know, two uh, like kids going to, to the river, like skip rocks um, mm. when, when they should be technically working in the field, right? So it's both an act of resistance and, and a sort of act of, of love of themselves, you know, and this is why I love the uh, the slave narratives and the Federal Writers Project um, narratives and, and other narratives, you know, both including autobiographies. There you go. The slave narratives, <laughs> all those, I, it's, th those are so important because I think as important as Douglas is, you know, and as important as Harry Tubman is, as important as Alado Equiano is and Harriet Jacobs and all these folks who, who wrote and co-wrote these incredible um, narratives and autobiographies of their their lives after they escaped from slavery. The truth is that the vast majority of people did not escape, right? And the vast majority of people had to make a life for themselves in the midst of an institution, in the midst of a situation that's that's largely unfathomable for so many of us, right? You know, I, I thought about this all the time, especially when I was at the Whitney, and because as I was writing this book, we were building our family and I was, I was at the Whitney, we were about to have our second child. I closed my eyes and I imagined what it would be like if I went to sleep in my house and then I woke up and my children were gone. And I had no idea where they went. I had no idea who had taken them. I had no idea if I'd ever see them again. The, the, every time I even do that thought exercise, the sort of visceral response that happens in my body is it's like an unfathomable thing to imagine. Yeah. And yet that is the omnipresent reality that millions of people across generations lived with, right? The omnipresent threat that over them every single day, that at any moment you could be separated from the people you love, from your children, from your spouse, from your parents, from your community. And what I love about the Federal Writers Project is that it captures the small so the seemingly small but incredibly relevant and important ways that people were creating meaning for themselves in the midst yeah. of an institution that was enacting not only the threat of physical violence and the spectacle of, of physical violence, but also the sort of psychological threat of separation. Um, and, and for me to be able 
to create life, to create meaning, to create human connection, while surrounded by this omnipresent cr cl cloud of violence and, uh, uh, you know, either physical violence and psychological violence that hung over you at all times. What is love if not that? Come on right? now. You know, so, so for me, um, it, it just revealed the the limitations of, of Jefferson's imagination, you know, much less the, uh, and not not so much the, the limitations of, of black people's imagination. It's, it's like, how how small does your own sense of what love is have to be where your definition of what it looks like um, is so narrow when they, yeah. when, you know, right in front of you are, are endless and, and boundless examples of it, of it happening every day. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. And, and this flows like smoothly actually into two of my questions. So hopefully this one is one you'll appreciate, right? Your, your time at the Whitney, right, made me think of Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets. Mm. Because the goal of the mostly black team there is ensuring that the lives of the enslaved, more so than the trauma that they had to deal with, is centered there. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned how some people are critical of this centering because they accuse it of some level of sanitation, you mm -hmm. know, as, as being held captive itself as a big slice of trauma. Mm -hmm. All of this makes me think further upon the beautiful mess that history is, mm -hmm. how, how it is possible that during these heinous circumstances, our folks still made room for love, joy, ritual, and more. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the importance of work like uh, work that authors like Robert Jones Jr. are doing with The Prophets? Tony yeah. Morrison did with Beloved. Uh, Whitney, the Whitney Plantation does through the centering of the lives and mm -hmm. not just the traumas of the enslaved. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought Robert's book up. Um, yeah, I just finished. I was looking for it back here, but I see it on my other shelf over here. Yeah. Um, I thought that book was so important. Yeah, you know, I, I thought that book was so important. Um, and I told Robert, I mean, I just I've not. I don't know that I had seen. The life of enslaved people. Treated with as much tenderness yeah. as I saw in that book. Um, and not 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 even just romantic tenderness, but like like the 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 specific attention to the interiority yeah. of enslaved people's lives. I mean, it, you know, I, there are obvious echoes of of Morrison throughout that book, yeah. um, and I know you know Morrison is is so many of the she is the you know the literary god so many of us have on our proverbial wall, but. Um, you know, uh, that book is important because of the sort of the way that it centers the interiority and, and tenderness of of love of between enslaved people. Um, and also because like I've, I don't think that I've I've read. I not even think I'm, I most certainly have not read a book in which um, queerness was was centered in the life of uh, the enslaved is, is it was in that book. And which is so interesting, right, because you read a book like that and you're like, of course there were queer people during slavery. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, and it's interesting yeah. because we often receive a, the, the, the way that we have received slavery um, or images or ideas around slavery have often been associated with like masculine conceptions of the institution, which is, I think, you know, tying to my first answer or the answer right before this, which I think is part of why for so long when I thought about slavery, I thought almost singularly about the spectacle of violence 
that yeah. manifested this from well, that was manifesting it. Um, and I didn't think as much about family separation even, right? Because even the experiences of women and children aren't centered in our um, in our ideas, in our history, in our media landscape, um, in the way that slavery has often been, um, you know, conveyed. It is the story, you know, what people think of, they'll think of uh, Kunta Kinte being beaten and like, not mm-hmm. said, you know, and re- and it's that famous scene, you know, that's like, he's, I'm not Toby, like, you say, your name's Toby, your name's Toby, your name's Toby. And then, um, and I, that was a very real part of that experience, but it wasn't all of the experience. And I, and just getting out of like heteronormative masculine conceptions of what slavery was and, and what all parts of history were, I think is really important work. And I think is a unique type of work that the novelists can do, right? Because it gives you space to, um, to operate in the imaginative, right? And to, to use your imagination to imagine uh, what, what it, what did in fact exist, but to like yeah. do it with, you know, your own sort of um, unique sensibilities and and skill sets. So, so yeah, it's one of those books where you're like, well, of course there were there have always been queer people. Of course there were queer people during slavery. It's kind of wild that I've never read a book in which there were, uh, yeah. in which queer people were part of the story. Yah Jesse in Homegoing uh, alludes to it in that first. Um, yeah that first chapter i think um but uh but yeah no i you know and that book is also just like beautifully written um and and i think it it is this goes into sort of the larger theme that we're kind of stumbling into here it's just like the expansiveness of blackness right like that blackness is not one thing that black people are not one thing who operate in one way that um you know even in that story even in robert's book the depictions of the enslaved, like all those enslaved people are so different from yeah. one another. You know, like there, there's no, there's no caricature. Like those are all people, those are all individual people with like individual ways of seeing the world, individual ideas of what the, the institution that they are a part of means for them, right? Like, you know, they have very different ideas of like what freedom looks like or how one should get freedom. Um, and whether it's worth it and whether, and I think that that's so important because, you know, at the end of the, at the beginning of the civil war, 4 million people were enslaved. And there, that meant there were 4 million different ideas about yeah. what slavery was and what it did and what freedom looked like. And, and I think, yeah, just like really rejecting caricature, rejecting two dimensionality, rejecting singularity. Um, that's one of the, the greatest things that, you know, literature can do. And, and so I'm so glad that, that Robert wrote that book. Um, and I think it's gonna honestly open up space for um, a, a whole host of, of books that are gonna come and be part of that, tra- you know, the tradition that Robert is himself a part of. Um, but now, a whole, you know, I think about all the writers who are looking at that and saying like, what, you know, this, a book like this was a New York Times bestseller. You know, a book like this was a National Book Award finalist. Like, what other stories are going to be told now um, because mm-hmm. of the space that that the prophets opened up? So, um, so I'm I'm very you know thrilled for Robert's success and, and glad that book is out there. Yes, sir. And I tell people every day that I would I'd find a thousand White Walkers with like a sharpened broom straw 
for the prophets. I love that book. I, yeah. I, I, I love that book. Specific image. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just me out there, just you there know, you bring it on. Is <laughs> <laughs> it on? It's on me, Richie. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna kind of mold these two together because it's. I think it's getting at the same thing. Uh, but one thing I think folks still uh, don't realize that you made sure to highlight in your book is that children sustained and embodied the institution of slavery, mm. especially after the formal end of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, we we already kind of mentioned it, uh, the Federal Writers Project, uh, and I've read the one from Mississippi, uh, and reading how all of those Black folks whose words are in those pages start from their youth strikes me uh, and strikes the same chord in me that the statues had on Yvonne. Uh, realizing that the institution of slavery is as much their inheritance as it is ours. Uh, you speak uh, to the importance of giving agency to children uh, via language, that there is enough value in providing them with the language, the history and the framework to the identity where um, uh, to, to identify why their society looks the way it does. Mm. Uh, as an educator, can you speak to how you've seen the possibility, this possibility be transformative? And like, because the other part that I'm thinking about um, is in the latter half of your book, you're talking about um, how uh, boyhood, um, how you have these, these boys running down streets named after Robert E. Lee and, and black girls in Mississippi uh, running down roads named after Nathan Bedford Forrest. And I teach in Forrest County. You know, mm, wow. and students don't, you know, they don't wow. know because a lot of times we aren't giving them that agency. So can you yeah. speak to the transformative power of, of giving children that language and that agency? And, and yeah. before you even answer too, this also makes me think of the girls in Senegal too. Mm, yeah, right? yeah, 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 the yeah. They were learning right from uh, from Hassan. But yeah, I yeah, just wanted to. No, they mm -hmm. were some, they were all stars, those girls. I mean, yeah. I want to make all of them president of every country. <laughs> <laughs> um, word, word, word. Uh, I mean, this goes to the origin story of the book, right? Like how in May 2017, I was watching these Confederate statues come down in New Orleans, statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, and watching these statues come down, thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. One of the implications of that was it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy, that my parents still live on the street today, named after yeah. someone who owned over 150 enslaved people. Because we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They're reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And that's not, not to say that taking down a 60 foot tall statue of Robert E. Lee is gonna suddenly erase the racial wealth gap, but it does help us recognize the way that history, um, the, recognize the, the sort of ecosystem of ideas that shapes our history. It helps us recognize the way that certain communities have been disproportionately um, and specifically and intentionally harmed throughout American history, and thus helps us understand the sort of historical context um, that led to the erections of monuments and street names like this in the first place and what what their specific uh, purpose was and what sort of intention was behind them um, that existed beyond the historical and in fact you were, was meant to have specific sort of implications for the messages that they were sending to the folks in these these communities. Um, you know, I I've, I think all the time about 
the what the the symbols and names and and monuments mean and, and sometimes you know people see them as like to see the these conversations as a distraction they're like these conversations are preventing us from having like more meaningful conversation like last year when juneteenth became a federal holiday people were like i don't care about juneteenth like get us we need voting rights like y'all using juneteenth as a distraction to get and and i am and i don't want to dismiss that criticism i am I am sympathetic to that criticism. I understand where that criticism is coming from. Um, I think I would frame it differently because, you know, in the context of Juneteenth, for example, I would, I would never say Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday doesn't matter, because to me that would uh, be a, a disservice yeah, to the generations of Black Texas activists who have been fighting for this for for generations, right? Like, you know, yeah. and I met so many of these people when I went to Texas, like who had been, who had been working to get Juneteenth, the, uh, the, the respect um, that it deserves, and the, and and you know, been part of these public awareness campaigns, and um, so that feels really important, right? That you know, and to honor Juneteenth is also to honor their work. Um, at the same time. Clearly, Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday is not the same as a material public policy intervention, right? It is clearly not the same as uh, voting rights legislation. It is clearly not the same as reparations. It's clearly not the same as uh, more funding for public schools. It is clearly not the same. You know, the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, I guess I reject the like false, I think it's a false choice. Like it's not a sort of either or. I think we can recognize the the helpful or we can recognize the the good things about Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday and recognize that like there is like symbolism is meaningful. Like it's not everything, but it is yeah. something. And take that seriously while also being clear about what it is not. Right. So we're like this symbolism is deeply important and it is a reflection of the story that we it is. It, and this is true. It is a reflection of a shift, a profound shift in public consciousness that has happened over the past 10 years, which has happened because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the activists and organizers on the ground over the course of the last 10 years who've opened up space from journalists and writers and poets uh, and scholars like myself to come in and be able to use our work to, to help reframe the narrative of this country. It's the same thing that happened during the civil rights movement, right? The civil rights movement was happening and you had uh, people coming in who, and because of the, the space that the civil rights movement opened up, you had, you know, social historians and scholars and journalists and artists who were able to use their work to help this country reframe and re and, and adjust its understanding of itself. Um, and so this is what social movements do. And so to it's not about like what's, you know, symbolic and what's uh, material. It's kind of like it's always been both. Um, yeah. And I think that, that we need to and th th I think it's that's okay. I think it's okay yeah. to recognize the 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 things that both offer and the limitations that that also exist in either one. Yeah, yeah, and and I appreciate that nuanced take on it too because I I, I can't lie, I'm definitely someone who fell more into like the latter, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, yeah. yeah, the latter is the one where you're like, um, the uh, what is this? What is this symbolic yeah. thing? Right. I get it. I, you know? I get it. I, and like viscerally, I feel that. Yeah. Um, I think I just having spent so much time with people to whom it mattered so much. Yeah. Um, 
who are like, you know, folks who are like the same age as my grandma, you yeah. know, who are like, who've been, who June, like celebrating Juneteenth has been, and, and getting Juneteenth, you know, making sure that, you know, Juneteenth was getting the attention from uh, young people and, and, and that its meaning wasn't lost, right? That's also yeah. part of it. like, you know, if you just having Juneteenth barbecues, you know, without accounting for like the sort of actual history that makes Juneteenth what it is, um, that's also, you know, so it's, 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 as you said, history is messy. Um, yeah. And I think sometimes we try to like make it less messy mm -hmm. in order to make it more digest digestible. Um, but like, you know, sometimes history is like soup and not spaghetti. I don't know if that metaphor works. <laughs> nah, that works. You know, <laughs> it's, like a whole, it's like a whole bunch of stuff in there and some of it you can see and some of it you can't. Um, yeah. But all of it makes the soup what it is. Yeah. I'll say this really quickly. It makes me think we have we have a Werner Damer st statue downtown and we have a Confederacy statue and they're within 10 feet of each other. Right. Mm. Um, the the daughters of the Confederacy put that Confederate statue there, I believe, 20 years, um, 20 to maybe 30 years after uh, the Civil War. The city mm. didn't even exist during the Civil War. Hattiesburg mm. didn't even exist. Right. And so there's no one here that could say I'm from Hattiesburg. Right. Who can like say that Hattiesburgians fought in in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So why did they strategically purposefully put that here so many years after that, you know? Mm -hmm. And and then what is the ramifications of those being within 10 feet of, of each other? And that's mm -hmm. the type of stuff I have my students kind of impact, I mean, unpack, um, you know, when, when we're talking about like the messiness uh, around those things and those people that have labored in the background who often go unnoticed, like you were mentioning. Yeah. And 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 I know uh, I know we we getting close and I, I mentioned earlier too we oh, usually yeah, have yeah. an epilogue but I think I got a question I got to ask you that that you know that maybe this we'll call this the epilogue it's, so it's very sexy so <laughs> on page page forty one we see you talking to David while you're in Monticello right and he mentions how history is what you need to know and nostalgia is what you want to hear and we even learn later on that memory is the space that uh, that kind of takes up the gap between those two. In Beloved, Toni Morrison talks about the phenomenon of rememory. Mm -hmm. And rememory is something that I feel we get closer to by asking the right questions. Can you talk to us about your journey of arriving to the right questions to ask of history and the importance of doing so? Can you mm -hmm. also talk to us about where you think rememory sits in the space between history, memory, and nostalgia? Hmm. Man. You know, Part of what I love about nonfiction, um, and specifically a nonfiction project like this, is that sometimes you meet people who say things that, like, you could never, you wouldn't, who say like what you were thinking, but in so much of a better way than you would have said it. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. what you know. I think about that quote by David at Monticello. You know, the history, nostalgia, memories being somewhere in between. I was when you're interviewing someone, like in your, you can't, you got to keep going, and like you know, you got your journalist face on. Um, but in your head, you're like, damn, that's a bar. Um, and you <laughs> write it down and you're like, I know this is this is going in the book. Um, you know, for me, you know, in terms of the, the, the initial part of that question, I don't know that there are, like what, what are the right questions or the wrong questions? I mean, I, I think the important thing is to 
to always be asking questions, right? And to mm. never stop. I mean, this this okay. book, this book was all all about questions. It was like all about questions, and it was governed by my curiosity. And at the end of it, it, it isn't that you know I had all the answers I needed. What I had more than anything else was more questions. You know, mm. I mean, like, it, and that to me is in part the the mark of what I hope is a successful project that like it it peaks more curiosities right that like it, it creates this you know a curiosity tree and there are all these sorts of branches and limbs and all sorts of directions you can go um and that's what i hope this book does for readers you know i hope this book is just the beginning of uh a series of of questions about you know how the scars of slavery are etched into the landscape all around us and and part of what i also hope it does is you know make us think about the way that not only is this history proximate to us in a in a physical sense but also what is our temporal proximity to this mm. history you know like in the epilogue you know as in speaking of epilogues you know what i talk about in the epilogue is my grandparents yeah. my grandmother born in 1939 jim crow florida my grandfather born in 1930 jim crow mississippi and walking through the national museum of african african american history and culture with them and recognizing that this history that's documented in this museum is history that they lived through, history that is a reflection of their experiences. And, you know, as I was talking to my grandmother after our time in the museum, she was like, she had this refrain. She just said, I lived it. I yeah. lived it. I lived it. Yeah. And that was so important for me. And, and this goes to the, the second part of your question about like re-memory. I mean, for me, the the best spaces of memory are in the people most proximate to me. Um, mm. You know, part of how I write in at the end of the book, like sometimes the best primary source documents or the best primary sources are the people right next to you, um, yeah. the people you've known your entire life, your entire life. And for me that, you know, when I think about my grandparents, I think about these people who are themselves, these remarkable historical sites, these remarkable museums, these remarkable sites of memory um, in the so way that so many of our elders are. You know, I my my only regret is that I I didn't think to interview my grandparents while my other two grandparents were still alive. You yeah. know, yeah. I'm lucky. I feel so so filled with gratitude that I that this project more than anything like got me to sit down with my grandparents and ask me in a formal and thorough way about their childhood. Um, in ways that I had never done before. And it just, I just learned so much about them, you know, and I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about my lineage. I learned so much about my history. And if, you know, if I, I'd talk to a lot of groups of teachers and educators and people be like, you know, sometimes will ask me like, if you could do one thing for education, you know, what would you do? And, you know, I mean, there's other than like give people, you know, trillions more, more dollars worth of resources to, to do their work. Like if I could do one thing, it would make every social studies and history teacher do an oral history project with their students. I mean, I just, mm. I think that um, it would be so meaningful and so generative for young people to interview their elders while they're still with us. Um, and it would also be so meaningful and so generative for those elders to, to be pushed to excavate and, and 
and sort of unearth some memories that they might have stowed away and stored away a long, long time ago. Um, and there's just there's so much that we can learn about our communities, our histories, ourselves in, in having those conversations. And, you know, when I was a 16 year old, I wasn't really thinking about that. Um, yeah. And even now as an adult, you know, it's every, you know, when you go back home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and, you know, I got a three year old who's like trying to throw peas and macaroni across the table. So I can't really have a thorough uh, yeah. engaged conversation with my grandmother at that time. But like really setting a time aside the time to just chat and discuss and, and excavate that history um, is so important. And and I think, uh, you know. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved, you know? And so when I think about my grandfather, I think about my four-year-old son sitting on my grandfather's lap, and I imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I'm just reminded that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago, truly was not that long ago at all. Um, there are people alive today who, who were raised by, who loved, who were in community with, people born into to chattel slavery. Uh, and so the idea that we would suggest that people don't have any, you know, that that history has nothing to do with our contemporary landscape of inequality is is profoundly disingenuous. Um, so, yeah. 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 No, hey, no, thank you for that answer, truly. And and it does speak to just the importance of oral history. And I remember in speaking of Crash Course, right? Mm -hmm. I remember one time um, I was seeing like John Green talk about history. And that's one thing he said. He said the discriminatory nature that lives in basically american academic studies against oral history and mm. your book is just one of the many reasons why right shows one of the many reasons why oral history is so important right mm. and the beautiful thing about yours is you combine the best of both worlds you wrote down everything they told you so there we go you know yes. um so we're not gonna do a full epilogue because we know we we passed your time right but we do have one important question that yeah. we ask every guest and then we'll we'll let you go saw me oh um who is someone that you would like to uh see us interview next on books or pop culture uh and the only caveat is that it has to be someone uh that you would be willing to help us connect with in the event that we would be connecting mm -hmm. hmm. um oh man there's so many people um <laughs> you know the homie e-viewing um, mm -hmm. I don't know if y'all viewing or Elizabeth Acevedo, um, mm -hmm. or Safiel Hilo. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, lots of lots of great. There's so many great writers out there. I feel lucky to call so many of them friends. Um, I'm trying to think of who has like recent books out. All of them kind of do, but uh, but yeah, hopefully we can make something like that happen. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, that sounds good to us. So. Clint Smith, thank you, sir. We we appreciate your time. We value it. Thank you for taking yes. time out. Um, he's Clint Smith, like I said. My co-host over here is Achille Nazari. I'm Reggie Bailey. We're Books of Pop Culture. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll see y'all next time. Take care. Peace. Right. Love, love.